Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Well, I am excited to be here this morning and to open the book of Titus together in this this, uh, three-part series that we have. You'll notice in your Bibles that Titus is is a short book. It's only three chapters long. It takes up a page or two in a normal Bible. But it is packed full of teaching concerning how the church is to be structured and function in the world. See, Paul is good at using his words. He doesn't waste sentences, and he doesn't mince words at all. He gets right down to business. I hope this will become evident as we walk through this book together. Now, over, uh, Pastor Mark was saying, over the three alternating Sundays, we will walk through this letter so that when we finish Titus, I hope that we will have a grasp of this wonderful letter. Now, as we go through this study, you will become aware that we aren't able to cover everything in Titus. You'll notice the the length of our passage this morning. Uh, We're we're covering a lot of ground and we're going quickly. We're only going to scratch the surface, but that's okay. I would urge you to use these sermons and, and to just use them in a study as you dig deeper into God's word yourself. God's Word is full. And all of us will be lifelong students of the revelation that we have been given in the Scriptures. Another helpful resource that I would recommend is the Grace Podcast, the commentary. Pastor Mark and um, Cameron have been doing a really great job going through that and talking about things pertaining to church. They've asked me to join them and talk a little bit about Titus and go over some of the things that we don't cover in the sermon. I'm excited to do that. Also, of course, please talk to me, talk to Pastor Mark, talk to the elders, talk to one another. As we go through Titus, if you have questions or, or you're confused or there's things that you would rather discuss, just talk to us. We are, after all, a co- congregation seeking more grace and more depth and more community. So let's talk to one another. So before we get started in, in our passage, I'd like to just have a basic orientation of the book itself. We know that this is a letter written from Paul to Titus. This is the great apostle Paul, the church planter that we find in Acts, going all over the world, planting churches and converting people. And Titus is one of his companions. Now, we don't see him very much in Acts. We don't see him a whole lot in the New Testament. He doesn't show up as often as some of the other companions of Paul, like Timothy and Silas. But we do know a little bit about him. We know that he was probably that he was a Greek and he was probably converted during Paul's ministry. Now he appears to be a man that, that's well established, a little older than Timothy, strong in conviction and a natural leader. He was so trusted that Paul sent him to Corinth. Remember Corinth, the place that was having all kinds of issues in the church. Paul sent him there to work with the church at Corinth. We also see him here. In the book of Titus, he's in Crete, and he's going to establish the churches there, provide leadership. Now, most of what we know about Paul's missionary journeys, we find in the book of Acts. And through the book of Acts, we see him moving all over the place. But one of the things that's interesting is we don't really see him around Crete very much. The only time that he's really around Crete is when he's on trial and he's going to Rome. And he's in fear of his life. 
But he's going to Rome, and they pass through Crete on this voyage. Now, he probably didn't have time or opportunity to start churches at that point. So, so the idea is that he probably was released from prison in Rome and went back. He would have to go through Crete to get home. And during this time, he probably shared the gospel. He probably had an ability to plant some churches there. Now, Crete is the largest Greek island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea, the largest of the Greeks. I did botch that on the podcast, so I wanted to cover my bases there. But one of the things that's really interesting about Crete is it had a really, really poor reputation. You can see it in our passage today that Paul quotes one of the Cretan prophets who said that Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And Paul simply agrees with this assessment of them. Another ancient historian said it was impossible to find personal conduct or treacherous or a public policy more unjust than in Crete. Another stated Cretans are the only people in the world whose eyes, there's no gain, is distasteful. In fact, the Greeks had such a low opinion of the Cretans that they created their own word. The Cretizo meant to lie or to cheat. So this was a tough society for anybody, much less for young churches seeking to glorify their Lord and Savior. Knowing Paul, we should not be surprised that when he came to Crete, he saw this as a ripe opportunity for the spreading of the gospel. However, Paul only began his work there and then left Titus there to put things into order. So in many ways, this letter functions like a church planting manual of what it takes to be a healthy church. See, what are the priorities that Titus should maintain? What are the steps that Titus should be taking? Well, these were specific questions in the Cretan context. They come to us as the timeless word of God. Another way of thinking about it is a blueprint for the church. See, Paul's desire is that the church should be a strong and a gracious community. But that doesn't just happen in the church. There needs to be planning. There needs to be direction. There needs to be structure. Just like any job or any project or anything that we do, will fail if there's not a plan. So it is with the church. See, in this series, we will follow the chapter breaks as we lay out Paul's thinking. Today, we will look at the structure and the authority in the church. Next time, we will look inside the church and ask, what should the church look like? What do the members of this gracious community look like? What is correct doctrine? And how does what we believe shape who we are? What is our motivation? Part three, we will look at the outside blueprint for the church. How is a church to interact? How does this gracious community look from the outside looking in? What is the message of the church to the world? I look forward to this series because while we're not a recent church plant, one of the things that Pastor Mark has been emphasizing is the need to rebuild after the pandemic. Over the last 15 months, everything has been changed. Everything has been somewhat altered. Now, here on July 4th, we look forward to normal worship and the restoration service. But in a lot of ways, we're still rebuilding as a church. We're still working on what, what do we do in this society? What do we do with our resources? How do we do small groups and youth group and things like that? So this, I hope, 
will be a beneficial study for all of us as we reevaluate who we are and what we're doing. Now that we've set our course, let's begin by looking at today's passage. I mean, what better way to start a series than to discuss something that most people find as revolting as authority? Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word authority, my mind immediately thinks about people going on power trips and people saying, you need to do what I said because I said it. Our anti-authoritarian culture bristles at the concept of authority demanding to be left alone. We want to be the captain of our own ship and the pilot of our own lives. How many times have you heard kids, teenagers in particular, as a middle school teacher, hear it all the time? How many times do you hear them complaining about their parents and the silly rules that they've established for them? But if we're honest, when you stand around the water cooler at work, how many times... Uh, talks about your boss. How many times do we hear people speak poorly of the bad decisions their bosses can make? Seems like one of the mottos of our current culture and time could be, you can't make me do that. Despite an anti-authoritarian culture in my own rebellious heart, what we will find in Titus 1 is that God provides the church with a structure of authority that is meant to instruct and protect His beloved people. While Christ is the great shepherd of the church, He has commissioned under-shepherds to oversee the local church. I'm not looking to put our elders on the spot or to flatter them or anything like that. But I am excited to spend some time reflecting on the great resource and blessing that God has provided us as His people through the church. May we be grateful for God's provision and protection towards us. We'll do this by looking at three ideas here. We'll first look at the authority of God in the church. We'll look at the authority God has given in the church. And then we will look at adversaries to authority. Now the first thing that we want to establish is the authority of God. That we stand as a church under the authority of God. See, when we come to greetings in the New Testament, it's often easy to skim past them. Uh, they're, they're so rich and they're so deep, and often they provide a preview of the letter that's going to follow. And we don't have time to go through Paul's greeting here in Titus completely, but one of the things that I want to look at is who he says he is. You see, Paul first states his position. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul is not coming into this letter claiming his own authority, but he comes with the greater authority of God. Remember when Jesus ascended into heaven after he had been resurrected from the grave, he gave his disciples the great commission, saying to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This was a special commission to the 11 disciples who were also called apostles. See, when Jesus called Paul, he gave him this authority as well. So when Paul writes to Titus, it's as if he's saying, look, Titus, I'm writing to you something that's not only important, it's imperative. Listen to what I say, not because of who I am, but because of who I represent. He clarifies this further in verse 3 when he says, 
that he has been entrusted with the preaching of the word by the command of God our Savior. See, Paul has been given a message and authority to speak to the church. But it's not for position or personal gain, but rather for, to focus on God and his words. Paul's words are prophetic and must be heeded as the words of Christ. So as we begin a biblical look at church authority, it's important to remember to, that we find its source in our head of the body, Jesus Christ. Like Titus, we must heed the words of Scripture. We must submit to the Lord our God and our Savior in all things. He is our great shepherd, the sovereign ruler, and the king over all. He has graciously given us his word so that we may know him and serve him. Obedience to Christ means obedience to his word. While this may mean that our church will not always reflect the same values and the priorities of our culture, the goal is that the church, as well as our own individual lives, will rest under the authority of God as we obey Christ through his word. Secondly, we see the authority in the church. Now, our snapshot of our gracious community, everyone has a role. Elsewhere, Paul compares the church to the body of Jesus Christ, reminding that Christians are a body, that we're not all the same, but there's great diversity. And within the church, there are many roles, there are many things that must be done. Just like a body has a hand, a foot, and an eye, and a nose, and they have different purposes, so the members of the body of Christ the church performed different functions. Now this being said, to be in the church is to share in community life in the betterment of the body that we all work towards the same goal and we all work under the same authority of Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins giving Titus directions of what this body should look like by looking at the leaders who serve in the church. Verse 5, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might Put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, God has ordained that for a community to flourish, it must have order. Like a garden, someone must oversee the garden to make sure that it produces most abundantly. Now this year, I've been reminded of this garden analogy. We have started our own garden. Uh, we had little pots that we had our tomatoes and our peppers in. Uh, but this year we decided to be adults and till up a little ground and plant them in the ground. Now, one of the things that has struck me is the amount of work and planning it requires for a garden to be productive. Um, just in full disclosure, how much work and planning it requires for Christine for our garden to be productive. I have not been much help at all. Now, you can't just throw a bunch of seeds on the ground and hope that your garden will take off. And it will produce abundantly. If you would do that, you wouldn't have very many plants at all. No, what you have to do is you have to prepare the bed. You have to till up the ground and then prepare it for the plants. You have to plant your, your plants in rows. You need to put everything where it belongs. You need to water it. You need to feed it. You need to make sure that the, the bugs aren't getting at it. That the bunnies aren't getting at it. That the kids' soccer balls aren't getting at it. There's a lot to do with this garden. It's a lot of work. Now, in the church, the idea is similar. See, one of Paul's chief concerns is that churches need to be put into order. Sometimes people have the notion that church is just people getting together and living life, and everything will work itself out. But without order, the church would flounder. 
For this reason, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every town, a team of leaders to watch over the church. In verse 7, Paul calls them overseers and God's stewards. Paul is using language of a house manager or a butler. These individuals aren't owners, but rather caretakers for another. They're to oversee everything that is going on and provide direction and support for the sake of the good of the homeowner. Just as Jesus came not to be served, but rather to serve, one of the things we realize about elders is that they are ultimately servants, not rulers. Paul indicates that there should be more than one. Even in individual churches, congregations can't thrive if we just have one serving elder. That is why we have multiple elders. While Pastor Mark is a teaching elder, there are more elders listed on the back of your order of worship. Men and individuals that we know that are overseeing grace. It is also important to note that elders are to be found from within the church. If you have been attending grace for a while, you'll remember um, sort of the process that we go through in uh, bringing elders on. They are nominated and they are voted for by the congregation. See, their character is recognized by, by you, the congregation, before they are put into leadership in the local church. This is not the picture of climbing the corporate ladder or pursuing positions of authority for personal gain. It's rather a picture of a community recognizing God's gift and working in men towards service. See, they are a gift and a resource to the people of God. Now, Titus is commissioned to go find these elders. And two questions emerge. Well, what do they, who are they and what should they do? We find this in verses 6-9 through nine in our passage today. Verse 6 says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Isn't it interesting that Paul tells Titus to first examine the person's family. The family is the testing ground, the litmus test to find out who a person truly is. We can understand that, can't we? I mean, who do we spend the most time in our day with? Day in and day out, week in and week out. Who do we invest the most in? Who sees not just the the facade of when we go out in public and we dress ourselves up and we comb our hair, but also sees our faults and our blemishes and us at our worst moments? I mean, it's our family. We may be really good at keeping our, up our image in public, but I don't know anybody who's really that good at keeping it up in private. Paul says that if you want to evaluate someone's record, he has to have a proven record in the home. Look at his relationship to his wife. Look at how his children are being raised. Here Paul tells Titus that children are to believers, that they show evidence of being raised according to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. See, in a parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3.5, we see the family emphasis, emphasis that Paul has again, but he says it a little differently. He says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So home is the training ground in the first half for an elder. In addition to the home, the elder must have a proven himself outside the home. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent for greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, when we come to lists like this in the Bible, it's important to remember uh, that the positive and negative statements also imply the opposite as well. So, for instance, if you think about the Ten Commandments and we hear the command, thou shalt not kill, there's an implied commandment that we should honor, protect, and preserve life. So, in a similar fashion, when we come to a list like this and an elder is told not to be arrogant, the opposite, he's to be humble, is implied. So rather than being quick-tempered or drunken or violent or greedy, he ought to be patient, merciful, sober, peaceful, and selfless. Add to this hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And while these are all qualities that are to be defined in the Christian community by all Christians, there's a high standard of life and moral conduct for the overseer, for the leader in God's church. Now, we maintain that no one can find perfection on this side of history before the coming of Christ. But there must be a reality of God's work in our leaders, in their lives, that there's no excuse for them to be very gifted if God isn't working in their life, actively sanctifying them and changing them, that they might reflect Christ and lead others to reflect Christ. They all remain under the authority of God in the church. No one is above the law or the rule, especially those that are given authority within the church. Another thing to remember when we come to uh, lists like this in Scripture, Paul is not giving us a checklist to achieve, a means to be saved, or a way to gain approval. Now, that would be moralism. Now, instead, Paul is helping Titus to remember these are important qualities to look for when identifying the servant-leading overseer in God's precious church. Now, up to this point, the list that Paul has given us has been largely descriptive. In other words, Paul has pointed out things that should be evident and observable from the outside of a person. Paul is focused on who the person is rather than what they should be doing. However, verse 9 pivots and highlights the elder's chief responsibility to the church. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul's command is to stand firm in the trustworthy word as taught that stewards of God's house are not innovators. They're not inventors. They are those who know God's word and stick to it. What is it that we believe about the Bible? Well, as, as a church, we, we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and we say that it's a good representation of what is taught in Scripture. But we're also clear that it's what is taught in Scripture and that ultimate authority lies within the Bible, within the Word of Christ. See, the ones who are granted authority in the church must hold firm to the trustworthy Word. And Paul gives us two reasons, two things that that looks like as it's played out. What does it mean to hold on firmly to the trustworthy word? Well, one is to give instruction in sound doctrine, that there's an ability to teach people and congregation members, that there's a depth of biblical life and knowledge. See, teaching elders require rigorous formal education 
before they can step uh, into the ministry that Pastor Mark has. Lay elders take theological leadership classes and an examination of the doctrine so that they know and that they're approved before they step into their roles. There should be someone that you could approach if you need direction, if you need biblical instruction. You might not know everything, but they'll sit down with you and they'll talk through what does the Bible have to say about that? God's word is expansive. God's word has the answers for us. They're not going to give pat answers, easy answers. But they'll give biblical answers. They'll also pray with you. There are issues. There's a passing on of knowledge that accords with godliness. Helping to encourage the congregation to live lives that correspond with the gospel. That there's a passion for the Lord and a desire to see people turn from their thoughts and their minds upon the Lord and trust Him in all things. Returning to the gardener analogy, it's helpful for us as a congregation to remember that gardeners don't grow the plant. They provide the order. They provide the structure. They provide the water and the fertilizer. They put it in the best spot for the plants to grow. Likewise, a shepherd of the sheep doesn't force feed the sheep, but leads the sheep to good pasture and clear water that the sheep may thrive and flourish. Our elders cannot cause us to grow, but they are committed to providing nourishment and spiritual counsel needed for growth to take place as the Spirit of God works in our hearts and in our minds. There's also another side of holding firm to the trustworthy word that Paul mentions, and that's rebuking those who contradict the word of God. That there's a protection built in for the people of God against the adversaries. The gardens require not only food, but someone to go through and weed it and pull those weeds out. Shepherds must drive off wolves and bears and other predators. See, part of loving the flock or the garden is to identify threats and eliminate dangers. And in the same way, elders safeguard the church from false teachers and doctrine. This is what Paul takes up in the last part of our section, verses 10 through 16, as we see the adversaries to authority. Unfortunately, the church in the New Testament clearly is always under attack. Every New Testament letter that I can think of draws believers' attention to the reality of false teaching and doctrine that comes into the church and tries to sway people from the church from the truth and turn people from the Lord. It's an ever-present danger. However, if, if we miss it, we're to be on our guard. If we miss it, Paul reminds us that one of the key elders of the church is to see that, to identify it, and deal with these false teachers. Now, one of the things that I really appreciate about Paul is the way he gets so animated when he deals with false teachers. He doesn't, again, mince words. He says it like he sees it. Listen to what he says about these people. He says, they are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We already quoted what he said about Cretans, that they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, that they are defiled, unbelieving, and detestable. They are disobedient and unfit for any good work. In contrast to the elders, here the false teachers are easily recognized by who they are. They can also be recognized by what they do. First, we see that they are upsetting whole families 
by teaching for shameful gain. And secondly, that they devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We see that they are divisive and actively harming the church of Christ. Now, we don't know exactly. Paul doesn't give us exactly what the heresies that uh, he was confronting here in the Christian church was. But we do know the circumcision party from Galatians and other places in Scripture. We know that they often uh, were, they were moralists, that they said, yes, you can be saved and you can be a Christian, but you also have to observe these old Jewish rites and you have to observe circumcision and other Jewish rituals, that there was a moralism, that there was a turning away from the free grace that we were offered in Jesus Christ by this group. There also seems to be a sense that there's money involved, that these people are gaining from the congregation in some way. There also seems to be this antinomian licentiousness, this idea that what you do doesn't matter. If you've been saved, then what you do doesn't matter. And you can live however you want. You can do whatever you want. The heresy of any kind must be put out of the church. That it must not be allowed to gain any traction. Ultimately, living and promoting false doctrine devastates spiritual life. And you can see that what Paul says here where he says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by his, their works. So Paul gives Titus two imperatives. Two things that he has to do. First, he says, they must be silent. Another idea, the idea is that they're, they're like a dog that's barking. They have to have a muzzle put on their mouth. They have to be silent. And somebody has to stand up to them and make sure that that happens. Secondly, they are to be rebuked sharply. The false doctrine is not to be tolerated or taken lightly or brushed under the carpet. Instead, it must be confronted directly, boldly, and forcefully. Elders are to be on alert constantly for anything that does not accord with the Scriptures and take immediate action in a way in which two things might happen. The first thing that may happen, and the goal would be, verse 13, they may become sound in the faith. That we may convert people. That, that if we have wrong ideas and wrong thoughts, we talk to each other. And, and there might be conversion. That we might be in accord with the truth. But Paul says in chapter 3, that they are to be silenced. And if they won't be silenced, they're to be put out of the church. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, and sinful is self-condemned. So this is the other part of holding firm to the faith. Elders are to find where there's false teaching and make sure that we're staying straight and narrow, that we're staying in accord with the Scriptures themselves, that we're not twisting anything like the Cretans were doing, that we're not changing our direction or our course and relying on anything other than the free and saving grace of Jesus Christ. So what are we to make of all this? We're not all elders. We're, we're a congregation, a people of God. But remember, Paul is starting by looking at the authority in the church. And as a church, we're looking at what does a church look like? What does a healthy church look like? One of the things, it has elders. It has leadership and authority built up within it. Well, it's made up of believers, we, we also recognize that it, it's completely built on a level playing field before the foot of the cross. It's not about hierarchy or people being better than others. It's about a, a church being healthy, 
having the leadership that God has given to it. And we all play a part. We should seek the betterment of the whole. There's special responsibility that lies with these elders. Their task is to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they might be able to give sound instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, our elders are to care for the body and to seek its flourishing through cultivation and protection. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, they are keeping watch over our souls as those who give an account to the Lord. First, let us keep them in our prayers. Let us pray for our church and for the leadership that has been established within the church. Secondly, it is important to remember that we have a resource, that we, that we have leaders, that we have people that we can go to and talk to and take our cares to and ask for prayers. People that we can trust. We know that have been equipped with the knowledge of the Bible and a passion for our Savior and Lord. Finally, let us thank God for the protection and the provision as he continues to provide for us in the church as we eagerly await his return. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.